This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We welcome you to this edition of uh, Real Talk. It is Tuesday, May 16th. It is a smoky morning mm-hmm. uh, in our neck of the woods, the Metro Edmonton region. Of course, uh, more than 90 fires continue to burn across the province. Uh, a good number of them, a couple of dozen of them out of control. I know I say that sort of candidly and casually, like, you know, there's more than a, uh, two dozen fires out, out of control. It doesn't mean we don't take them seriously. It doesn't mean that that our minds aren't always on the thousands of people that are displaced, that have uh, remained on evacuation order. And, of course, uh, this is something on a show this style where we're talking about uh, bigger issues and longer-term stuff. You know, many times uh, you may catch an episode of Real Talk from a couple months ago or three months ago, and it, it still remains relevant, the subject matter we're talking about. We're not so much a breaking news show. At the same time, we recognize that so many members of this listening or viewing audience are personally impacted by these fires and of course we know that there are thousands of brave men and women that are doing everything that they possibly can some of them professional firefighters some of them civilians Uh, and of course this is something that has has dominated news headlines it's led to headlines across the country for the past few weeks Uh, a significant portion of this province remains under a heat warning including our hometown of Edmonton, and this is something that's front of mind for all of us. We wanted to address that right out of the gates today. We are going to be talking some politics today. We're going to follow up on my conversation with Adam Zivo yesterday. We're doing this in three parts this week. Zivo, a National Post columnist, put out what he described as an expose, about a 10,000-word piece describing the Liberals' safer supply program as as one that's creating a new opioid epidemic in Canada. In other words, it's, it's very problematic. Today, we're going to hear from Prime Minister Stephen Harper's former public safety advisor. He's a law professor at the University of British Columbia and an award-winning best-selling author. Professor Ben Perrin will join us for his take on this. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking to a guy who has lived experience first-hand experience. Guy Felicella with a very powerful story. Guy was living on the street. Guy was using drugs on a regular basis. Now he's a harm reduction and recovery expert. We wanted to get three different angles on this to help you form your opinion on something that should be a bigger conversation across the country. Also today, Rachel Gilmore will join us. She's easily one of the most prominent let's say, next-gen journalists in Canada. She's been a a digital journalist for a long time for some of the biggest outlets, including Global News. You've probably seen, whether you realized it was her or not, her (laughs) reports on TikTok and Instagram. She's on Twitter. I would say, and this isn't exactly a competition, and it's a race to the bottom, but she's got to be one of the journalists who endures the most abuse, the most harassment from members of the public. It's absolutely brutal. I mean, she was attacked for her Mother's Day post just a couple of days ago. Rachel's going to join us to talk about getting fired just two weeks after winning a significant journalism award. She's going to talk about what it's been like to make a name for herself covering far-right extremists in Canada and quite frankly, the price that she's paid. We're looking forward to that interview coming up in about 25 minutes. This episode of Real Talk is presented by Danatech. You can check out Danatech online, 
Danatech.com, a leader in the safety training space for more than 30 years. Today, they're proud to count themselves among the foremost providers of online safety courses. Danatech blends deep cross-industry expertise with proprietary learning management system tech. That's LMS tech. It makes their courses stand out in the industry while creating an easy, seamless training experience for training masters and learners alike. You can learn more about what they do on their website. It's done right at Danatech.com. Of course, we're two weeks out from the Alberta election, and we do our best to stay on top of stories as they break. Yesterday, we were talking about somewhat remarkable polling from David Coletto and his team at Abacus Data that showed that among decided voters, the NDP has a 10-point lead. 51% of the decided vote in the province is compared to 41% for the UCP. Well, yesterday, polling results leak from Janet Brown. When you talk about Janet Brown, it, it, it's kind of like you're talking about who would she be, Johnny? Like She's like the Aretha Franklin of Alberta <laughs> pollsters. I'm, I'm trying to think of someone who commands so much respect respect like yeah. who is like the all-time you know do i call her the goat is she the greatest alberta pollster of all time those who pay attention to politics will look to her track record and say she's rarely wrong her poll results results are often remarkable people take note and then they come true and so she's earned the respect of political watchers and strategists alike yesterday her numbers leaked that showed that the united conservatives in fact are not trailing in calgary in fact they have a 12 point lead which is big time so who do you believe coletto's reputable brown is reputable i was candidly and casually off the record texting some of this show's friends people that are working in the space some of them unable to comment on this on the record because they're working campaigns on the conservative and new democrat side and they chuckled. Of course, they know who they're talking to, so maybe they're playing their cards close to their chest, but they let us know that they don't know what to make of that polling out of Calgary either. I wanted to put a couple of upcoming segments on your radar on Thursday of this week, and two sleeps, as we say. We're going to bring back our group chat roundtable, and they'll get into this. These are people that have worked as campaign managers and strategists, and they're going to tell us what they're making of these numbers, in particular out of Calgary. On Friday, the strategists will join us. You know them from the podcast. Annalise Klingbeil, Stephen Carter, and Corey Hogan will be our guests in the official Real Talk Roundtable. That's coming up on Friday. Make sure you check it out. In news today, the Calgary Chamber of Commerce is applauding both parties for what they're describing as tax commitments that benefit the business community. This is an email that went out this morning, and the president of the chamber, Deb Yedlin, is saying that, quote, tax policy remains critical to attracting investment and jobs to the province and supporting a strong business ecosystem. The Calgary Chamber likes the United Conservatives' commitment to maintain corporate taxes at 8%. They've promised no hikes should they be reelected. And they're also welcoming the commitment that was made yesterday by the NDP to eliminate the small business tax in Alberta should the NDP be successful in the upcoming election. Now, that's a big deal. That's 2% off the first half million or so. People are saying this could cost the provincial government $150 million in revenue. It's obviously a policy that's going to get people's attention, but the question is, 
How's the government going to pay for it? That's something that we'll talk about with our panelists a little bit later on this week. We also wanted to note a story that's making news. This, another candidate for the United Conservatives apologizing for transphobic comments. These were comments from the candidate for uh, Lacombe Pinoca. This is uh, Jennifer Johnson out of central Alberta, just north of Red Deer, who went on the record at a recent forum uh, talking about schools. She claimed in an audio recording that was recently released that teachers are exposing elementary kids to, quote, hardcore pornography, talking about transgender elementary school-aged kids being chemically castrated, She even suggested that teachers are putting litter boxes in classrooms for kids who identify as cats. I apologize for anybody that spit out your coffee. Of course, this is being condemned, the comments are, by the opposition, the NDP, as you might imagine, but also by folks like Jason Schilling with the Alberta Teachers Association. And of course, longtime advocate and academic Dr. Christopher Wells, who's been on this show before. Now, the candidate has recanted her comments, saying that she was describing schools in the United States, not in Canada. And she apologizes for any miscommunication or confusion that this may have caused. It's another apology for another statement that just doesn't reflect what's really happening in Alberta right now. The question is, is it going to matter? You're listening to this podcast or you're watching us on YouTube, which leads us to believe that you're an engaged, informed citizen. But there's also polling results that suggest, like the ones down in Calgary, everything that's causing the big tidal waves of momentum or perceived momentum on social media might not be translating in real life. In other words, the average voter might not be spending their entire day on Twitter. So will scandals or at least ripples like this, but perpetual ripples it seems, derail the conservatives' plan on making sure that they're elected again under leader Danielle Smith? Time will tell, but we're asking you what you make of this. Are you a decided voter for either the Conservatives or the NDs? If so, what do you make of this? And perhaps more notably, are you undecided? And if so, what impact do stories like this have? An announcement from the Conservatives yesterday suggests that they're going to move forward. They're making it a campaign promise as well with what you might call forced treatment for people that are experiencing addiction, for people that have been unable to kick their reliance on drugs. The United Conservatives believe that families or law enforcement, other officials or organizations should have a say in whether or not someone is committed to treatment. This is something that's gleaning a lot of attention, including from our next guest. Uh, Professor Benjamin Perrin is a law professor at the University of British Columbia's Peter A. Allard School of Law. He served as a law clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada, and he was lead justice and public safety advisor to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He's the author of two previous books, Invisible Chains, Canada's Underground World of Human Trafficking, a national bestseller, and it was named one of the top books of the year by the Globe and Mail. He's also the author of Victim Law, The Law of Victims of Crime in Canada. Professor Perrin joins us from his home in Vancouver, B.C. It's nice to see your face again. Thanks for making time for us. 
Thanks, Ryan. Great to see you again. Now, what do you make of this? And, and this is not officially what they're calling it, but, but this initiative uh, from the UCP, it's been bandied about for a while, but it was officially introduced yesterday as a campaign promise, what you might call mandatory drug treatment. Uh, is this something that had been considered in Prime Minister Harper's office way back then? Is this purely provincial jurisdiction? Is it something you think could be effective or is it out to lunch? Well, this is unfortunately um, not the first time we've heard this, and it's not the first government who's who's either floated this idea. It's actually becoming kind of vogue among people who are, quite frankly, just kind of feeling like, can't we just make this whole addiction issue go away? Uh, can't we just lock everyone up who has an addiction who who kind of uh, annoys us or gets in our face? Um, yeah, if if that was the that is the spirit behind it, I mean, that would be horrifically wrong. I, I think there's definitely a lot of hatred towards people who use drugs. We know that. The research shows that people who use drugs are the most stigmatized of any group in society, even more than people with leprosy, according to a survey by the World Health Organization. So when we look at this question, we go, well, what's going to help? People are dying in huge numbers, uh, record uh, record numbers. Uh, there's been an increase in overdose calls even in Alberta recently. And so would forcing someone to go to, to treatment work? And what would that look like? So let's walk through this, right? So what does forced treatment mean? Well, typically what it's talking about is taking someone and, and putting them in a place where they cannot have access to these substances they've been using. What the research shows is that forcing someone voluntarily or forcing them to go on cold turkey on opioids is a, is a death sentence for many people. The British Medical Journal found that people in a 28-day detox program who successfully completed that program, meaning they went the whole 28 days without using drugs, were, get a load of this, more likely to die from a drug overdose than people who had not completed the 28-day detox program. Well, why is that? Well, the reason is opioids and people with opioid use disorder, if you slow your use, reduce it, or stop entirely, your tolerance rapidly declines. And so because this is a chronic relapsing condition, I won't surprise anyone to hear that people who have uh, addiction, that this doesn't just stop and it's over usually. Most times it takes many, many uh, years for people who do get into recovery and treatment. And the research shows that forcing people or voluntarily just going cold turkey uh, doesn't work. There's a whole bunch of other concerns with this law. The, the biggest risk we have right now of people overdosing and dying is using alone. That's what the research shows. People use alone, they're more likely to overdose and die. What this law does is it sends the message to people who use substances that if you tell someone that you're struggling with substance use, that you could be uh, brought before a court and, and locked up. That is not the message of understanding, compassion, support that people say that they need and benefit from when they make the decision to get into treatment. I should note that they're calling it the Compassionate Intervention Act. And it would allow, as mentioned in the intro, a family member, a doctor, a psychologist, a police officer to petition a judge to issue a treatment order. Uh, Danielle Smith saying yesterday in Calgary that this is part of the United Conservatives' focus on a recovery-oriented system of care. It would uh, come alongside a promise for more than 700 new addiction beds at 11 different treatment centers, uh, including four First Nations. 
I feel like the conversation in Canada, oftentimes, especially when you're talking about funding, when you're talking about the political side of this, it, it, it falls into two lanes, generally speaking. You'll have every politician acknowledge publicly that it's a problem because they can't ignore it. It's obvious. Thousands right. of people are dying in Canada. Two people are dying in Edmonton every day. The mayor just told us that sitting in this studio last week. So you've got, yep. I think, some people characterized as our plan is to you know, invest in harm reduction, safe supply, which we'll talk about, supervised consumption sites and the like, support services, creating the relationship with healthcare workers and going from there. And then you have others like the United Conservative Plan. Jason Kenney was a big advocate for this as well. The recovery method, so-called detox, investing in opportunities, investing in resources for people that are ready to, you know, get off drugs, to put it casually. Does it have to be a choice between one and the two? Are we oversimplifying how this needs to work? Are both an important pillar of an informed science-based strategy? What do you think? Yeah, let's start by talking about why people are dying. So you showed the statistics a minute ago from Alberta. We see similar stats in BC. We see Ontario, other provinces. Manitoba, by the way, won't even release their data. Can you, I don't know if you knew that, Ryan. They have not even, in the years this has been going on, have not publicly disclosed how many people actually died in the province of Manitoba. So just to flag that and call that out. But what is killing people? The hey, Ben, how, hang years, on a second. Why, why do you think that is? What's your, what's your speculation on that? You don't want people to know. If there's no body, there's no crime. Hmm. Okay? It's, it's, it's disgusting and it's wrong. There needs to be public accountability here. And the, the Premier of Manitoba and her government has refused to tell Manitobans how many people have died in her province from the toxic contaminated drug crisis. And this is a government that has opposed life-saving measures like overdose prevention sites, where the only thing that happens there is if someone who's going to use drugs anyway uh, goes unconscious, that they're given naloxone, an antidote to temporarily reverse the effects of an overdose. They're given uh, air breathing support, and if necessary, transport to a hospital so they don't die. The province opposes those measures, and they and yet they will not tell us how many people have died. Okay, so an informed approach does what? Like people right now in Alberta are, are looking, uh, there's a significant undecided vote right now, and people are going to be looking at platforms, and they're going to be, you know, for, for folks uh, for whom this is, the election issue or a major election issue, they're going to want to support the party that's 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 fighting or committing to an approach that can be effective. Can both approaches be effective? Is, is one out of tune? Is one more dialed in? I don't know how political you want to get. I know you have an interesting background yourself, your own personal evolution, which you've talked about here on the show. But what are you noting from election platforms in Alberta? Yeah, I mean, when I did my research for my book, Overdose, uh, we went and actually met with folks. I, I was opposed previously to things like supervised consumption sites. I went and actually saw them. I met people there and I read the research. There are hundreds, hundreds of peer-reviewed articles supporting overdose prevention sites. They save lives, full stop. So we need to have those. So part of this is we need to keep people alive. That means giving them an emergency response when they are overdosing because they're not in treatment right now. And it takes many times for people to get into treatment. And so, first of all, is we need to keep people alive. That means widespread available of naloxone and safe places for people to use. That's the first part of an evidence-based approach to responding to the, the toxic contaminated drugs that are killing people. Uh, secondly, we need to realize what is killing people. The research shows between 80 to 90% of people who have died of uh, drug toxicity in Canada had fentanyl in their system. I didn't know what fentanyl was. Okay, This is a 
this is a drug that was created in the 1950s for palliative cancer patients. It's a pain medication. Okay? Once um, the federal government started cracking down on the prescription drug, uh, drug abuse back in the Harper government era, and companies like Purdue said, hey, we don't want our products being misused, so they made them harder to crush and inject. Organized crime didn't just pack up their bag and go home. Uh, by the way, also cracking down on you know global heroin. They, they realized, hey, we can make our own fentanyl. Okay, we can make it in a lab and it's very easy to make. So that is what is killing people. So it's talking about grains of sand of a highly potent opioid and it has contaminated the entire drug supply. So if someone was addicted to uh, cocaine, there's fentanyl in it. If someone was addicted to MDMA or XC, there's fentanyl in it. If someone is buying drugs just for a bachelor party, there's a high chance there's fentanyl in it as well. Okay, and we have all these cases that show that. So if that's what's killing people is drugs that people are using now are contaminated with this substance of we don't know how much is in it. And again, grains of sand can be enough to kill. We need to replace that substance with a substance that is of known contents and potency. That's what's referred to as a safer supply. So again, it's people are using a toxic contaminated drug anyway, and we need to substitute that with a substance that has known contents and potency. And so that's where we see a big debate now is, are, is that a good idea or not? And so we can, we can talk more about that. And, um, and that's a huge part. Another piece is treatment and recovery. We need access to rapid access to evidence-based treatment and recovery. So two points. The um, public health people I spoke with said two hours is the window. That's the window you have when someone who has a serious substance use disorder says, I want help to get them into some sort of rapid access program. Most places in Canada, you cannot do that, not even close to it. And it needs to be evidence-based. So I mentioned before, detox-based alone is not medically recommended. It's dangerous. And so there needs to be things like opioid agonist therapy and that sort of thing. So if you look at what saves lives, the research shows uh, that 60% of overdose deaths were averted in BC because of three things alone, widespread availability of naloxone, overdose prevention sites, and opioid agonist treatment. So it's the combination of harm reduction and treatment that saves people's lives. We did talk about that opioid, uh, that oat treatment, so to speak, yesterday with uh, columnist Adam Zivo, uh, uh, reporter, journalist uh, for the National Post. We talked about uh, what he describes as his expose, a 10,000 word piece, the headline, Drug Fail, the Liberal Government's Safer Supply, Fueling a New Opioid Crisis. You can see it on my screen here at nationalpost.com, about 10,000 words, which is uh, an unusually deep dive uh, for a paper like that into a contentious issue. Not everybody appreciated the fact that we were even talking to Adam yesterday and uh, some advocates, in particular harm reduction advocates out of Western Canada, uh, Professor, were talking to us about what they call flawed research. Uh, we put it in front of you and, and you wanted us to note right out of the gates some of the sources here. So, so here's a, a, a portion of, here's a moment of my conversation yesterday with Adam Zivo. I was put in contact with a man named Dr. Julian Summers who is a researcher based out of BC, who had written a review of safer supply literature. And he had concluded that the vast majority of the research in support of safer supply is actually uh, hot air. Uh, essentially, most of the research supporting safer supply are small scale qualitative inter like uh, studies. So essentially uh, glorified focus groups with Vancouver based drug users who have a strong incentive to romanticize the program. Why is Dr. Julian Summers' name so significant here, Professor? Yeah, it was really telling your interview. And uh, I am actually glad that you interviewed him and that you've given, you know, myself and I understand you have Guy Filicello on some more to talk about. I think it's good to talk about this, have the debate in public. I agree. The problem is, uh, you know, what you hear from 
uh, from Adam, who I have personally reached out to, um, is that he got on this this kick um, by reading a report that Dr. Julian Summers wrote. Adam then goes on to say, and I, you might have the clip coming later, that he then sort of pulled the thread and everyone he talked to said the same thing. That should be a pretty big red flag um, if, if everyone you're interviewing tells you the same thing, right? So that's something called confirmation bias. It's well known in, in research. It also is a problem in journalism, right? If Adam's a journalist and not an opinion writer, he's supposed to hear both sides. He didn't do that. So this is neither, um, this National Post article is neither good research, nor is it good journalism. Um, I've asked Adam two questions, publicly and privately. And the first is, do you consider this piece, this 10,000 word article in a national newspaper, an opinion piece, because he writes those, or do you consider this a journalism piece? That's a, I think that's a fair question, Ryan. Sure. He, he has not answered that question. Uh, the other question I asked is, is he going to correct the record? Because conservative leader Pierre Polyev says that Adam's uh, National Post op-ed on Safer Supply is proof that Safer Supply kills people. Adam never makes that claim. The article does not say that. It does not say that Safer Supply is killing people and Safer Supply is not killing people. And so far, again, uh, Adam has refused to, to correct the record. His piece has, has caused a lot of harm. It's also... Uh, it's also flawed and has a lot of problems. So let's get into that. So to start with the, the Julian Summers piece, which was critical of safer supply, was commissioned by the province of Alberta. The UCP government wanted to uh, research it and uh, look into it and had already come out saying they weren't really a big fan of it. After a review of existing literature was put together by Dr. Summers and some others uh, at SFU, a, a group of 50, 50 research scientists and addictions experts and other people, folks with lived experience, wrote a, uh, a very critical review of that. They demonstrated that uh, Dr. Summers's review included articles that were not relevant. They weren't part of the study. Uh, he missed articles that should have been in there. And uh, when they assessed the research methodology based on standard scientific research methods, they found it was what's described here, got the report right here, as critically low quality, a critically low quality. So that was the start of of uh, Adam's introduction to safer supply, and he admitted he doesn't work on this issue, right? He works on, you know, Ukraine journalism and LGBTQ issues. He's new to this issue. He's not been living in Canada apparently for maybe a year or so. He didn't actually go and meet with anyone, go to any of these programs. Uh, so, so when he began to sort of pull the thread, as he said, and everyone would agree with him, he, he didn't even realize, or even if he did, he didn't talk to any of the 50 people who had problems with Dr. Summers' research. So I get back to the question, is this National Post piece an, an, an opinion piece? that someone's making, trying to argue a position from, or is it journalism? I think the evidence is clear. This is someone's opinion. Um, he also makes the claim that there's no evidence of safer supply programs working. Uh, that's also not true. And we can get into some of the facts from safer supply projects, not just in BC, but in Toronto and uh, in Ottawa as well. Here's that clip you were talking about. I just want to present it to the audience. This was Adam Zivo yesterday talking about his sources. What I can say is that there was a consensus amongst my interviewees that Safer Supply is not working. Well, I'm very aware that there's another school of thought that disagrees vehemently with that. And you can see that all over my Twitter. Everyone agrees that, you know, the opioid crisis is horrific and we need to do something. We need a solution. And what we're doing right now does not work. There it is. Wow. <laughs> can you believe that? I mean, so in the same breath, when he says that every, every one of his sources agreed that Safer Supply is working, but that he's aware that there are other voices and he didn't bother to talk to any of those people. So I think that, that I mean, really, I think it's a great service that you brought him on because he, he revealed to us that very clearly he did not do his homework, he didn't do his research, and he's on a vendetta. I heard him on your program say he, he is opposed to safer supply. That's what he said. Look, he is entitled to his opinion, just like you are, just like anyone is. 
but to put it in a 10,000 word investigative journalism piece, and that's in air quotes, and have it affect people's lives during a, a public health emergency and have it picked up by uh, conservative politicians, including Pierre Polyev, to, um, to make statements opposing a life-saving public health intervention is completely irresponsible. I want to give people an idea of the politicking that's happening around this. We, we, you know, we, we want to note that not everybody has three hours a day to watch every bit of news that comes out of Ottawa, plus their own province, plus their own city hall. Here's a tweet from the Conservative Party just a couple of days ago. I believe this was May 11th. The, quote, the Trudeau liberals are pushing hard drugs on our streets, fueling the opioid crisis and trapping more people in addiction. Get these toxic drugs off our streets and give real hope with recovery and treatment to bring our people home drug free. And then they reference that piece in the National Post. I know you're not a speechwriter, but you were a policy advisor to a prime minister. How would you counter that messaging in Ottawa? What would be your take on the accurate interpretation of what actually happens with a safer supply initiative? Well, the only thing we can do when there's misinformation like that, which is really, uh, really dangerous, is to fight back with the facts. I've been busy fact-checking uh, Pierre Polyev, fact-checking Adam Zivo on social media and interviews like this. Let's get some facts on the table. So some of the claims are people are not using their safer supply. They're just selling everyone. The claim was everyone was selling it to others and that it's not working. So here's some, here's some data. Let's get into the stats here. So this is from a study of the Ottawa Safer Supply Program. 81% of people who were on that safer supply program who had recently overdosed experienced no overdoses while on safer supply okay in toronto in the three months before people were on safer supply 50 percent of them in the program had had an overdose 50 percent half in the three months um during their time when they were on safer supply that reduced to 15 percent so first off if we say what is the primary objective of safer supply programs is to save people's lives the emerging evidence from these pilot projects is that it is. The other claim that we're hearing is that everyone is just, you know, no one's using these substances. They're just uh, giving them to others. That's also false. It's not true. When we talk about the issue of diversion, which has been known for years and is something we need to be uh, evaluating, monitoring, and making adaptations to these pilot projects to make sure that we get it right. But just to be clear, people are making use of the safer supply in choosing it in greater proportions than they were the toxic contaminated street drugs, the, the criminal drugs that is what Pierre Polyev has as the only source for people if he's opposing this. So again, from the, the pilots in Toronto, we see a 70, 78% of people in safer supply were using fentanyl daily. That's that toxic contaminated street substance I mentioned earlier. While on safer supply, that went down to 31%. So people are using their safer supply in these programs. Uh, and we see similar results from uh, from places like like Ottawa. Listen to this. This one really, I mean, shows shows a lot. Over half of people using the safer supply stopped using street fentanyl. Okay, we had another twenty six percent who decreased their use. So in total, that's seventy eight percent. Over three quarters of people on safer supply either completely stopped using street drugs, which is what we've just gone through, are killing people, or they reduced their use. So this is really important information. And, and none of it gets used. It just gets dismissed sort of uh, out of hand. Um, and, and the other point I'll mention is the BC Coroner Service, who does the toxicology reports of people, has found there is no indication that safer supply is contributing to drug deaths. No indication. When they do the, the toxicology reports, and they show, you can see the graphics, it's a whole bunch of range of drugs. 
but at the top of the list is that street drug, fentanyl. That's what's killing people. And the conservative plan is to continue drug prohibition, the war on drugs, try to pretend we're being compassionate, but continue the same old story of, of leaving the drug supply to organize crime to provide to Canadians. And we see the results. It's the toxic drug deaths. I want to jump onto our live chat here to give you a sense of where the audience is at, the live tuning audience this morning. Kathy reiterating to us that these conversations are extremely relevant to people. You know, for a lot of people, we're talking about their lives. We're talking about their inner circle, the people they love, the people they care about. Kathy says, my sister-in-law has been uh, addicted to drugs for over half her life. She's lost custody of her kids. Uh, She's been in rehab more times than I can count. She's now homeless and the kids rarely see her. It's so sad. You know, Ben says our valedictorian for our 2022 healthcare aid class, the graduating class was uh, a recovered drug addict who had significant help to kick the habit. And they were the highlight of our class. The reformation, so to speak, was a beautiful thing. That from Ben. Uh, Tara Lynn makes a good point. And, and Professor, maybe we'll wrap on this. Tara Lynn says, you know, a lot of times these conversations aren't addressing the correlation between addiction Uh, drug use and emotional illness right for many the pain of sober reality is untenable trauma ptsd other factors where's the therapy where's the counseling where's the reintroduction to life i don't Mm. have to tell you and i I know you know that my brothers worked on the downtown east side at insight for many years and it's a tough place to see quite frankly dr east hastings is a tough place to walk through and quite frankly i hate to use this word but you couldn't blame somebody for feeling a despair or hopelessness walking through that part of Vancouver. Do you believe that this opioid crisis with time, investment, empathy, public support can be addressed? Is this something that can be turned around in meaningful fashion? Yeah, absolutely. We know what the answers are. We have the uh, evidence to show what we need to do. We need to have widespread availability in the naloxone. We need safer use places like overdose prevention sites. We need a evidence-based safer supply that that we monitor and assess. And if there's unintended consequences, that we put in changes to to address those to the extent that we can. We need to provide rapid access to that evidence-based treatment, and we need to stop treating this as a criminal law issue. Right? None of the people whose whose really helpful comments you just shared said like we need more cops in jails. There's some people saying that. That makes it worse. If you want to spend a lot of money and kill a lot of people, you know, send them to jail. Okay, and it's your taxpayers' money, by the way. It's one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars a year to send someone to uh, to prison. Okay, so that and it, you're fifty times more likely to overdose and die if you're sent to jail. So so we we really can't keep doing the same either you know tough on crime approach or the liberal government's half half measures. Okay, the hypocrisy of that either. We need to go all in with following the evidence and maybe, like you said, let's end on that note of compassion. Um, you know, between uh, when we look at people who are who are using substances, not everyone, but a huge pr- proportion of them, it's it's trauma and it starts as children. And people who who suffer uh, moderate levels of childhood trauma, moderate to severe, are seven to ten times more likely to develop a substance use disorder. And this uh, this issue, though, it goes throughout society. So yeah, you can see uh, substance use on display in places like the downtown east side, and many other Canadian cities have places that are similar. But you don't see is that when I get the map from emergency responders of overdose calls in in Vancouver, it's the entire city lit up, right? Mm. It is not in one little area, okay? And in fact, downtown east side is the safest place for people to use drugs. Mm. You are 
you're significantly more likely to survive an overdose event in the downtown east side because of this the support that's there where people are, are dying and we never hear about is in the wealthy parts of town the middle class parts of town uh if people aren't aware of the you know just get a picture in your mind of of, of who's overdosing and who's dying in, in the community that's affected you know i encourage you to go to websites like uh, mom stop the harm and hear from from family members who support the types of interventions many of them support the types of interventions i'm talking about they've got photos of their children i mean these folks look just like they look just like you and me ryan and yeah. i don't know how old you are i'm in my mid-40s we're smack dab right in the middle of the um, greatest proportion of people overdosing and dying it's actually like middle-aged middle-aged men are right in the middle of that pack okay and um we all have different ways of i see you got a, a you know photo up on the downtown east. so let's talk about that so um, I actually go down to the downtown east side pretty pretty regularly, just on my own, whenever I really just kind of feel compelled to do that. I've brought my kids down there. I have mm-hmm. young children. We went down during the last heat heat wave event in August when people were dying. Uh, we didn't know that deaths were happening at that point, but it's, it's, it's hot out. We just did a simple thing. We went to the grocery store. We bought bottles of water, and we bought um, popsicles and ice cream. Mm. It's a hot day. Let's hydrate people, give them some hope, Okay. And that's what we did. We went around doing that. The day out, days after the Vancouver uh, decampment, where the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver police went in and put people's tents in, that they were living in into garbage trucks, um, you know, we went down. And this isn't me being like, oh, look what a great guy I am. Okay, I didn't have a heart to do this before, right? As you know, we've talked about this. This is a change of heart for me. And it started out with seeing that I'm no better, I'm no worse than anyone else down there. Okay. 50% of people, by the way, in, in places like the downtown east side have things like traumatic brain injury and mental health issues. Okay. So, you know, it's often said we're all just, you know, one, one or two steps away from being homeless. No one plans this. And for many people, including indigenous people who are disproportionately affected, this is the legacy of residential schools, the legacy of colonialism, the 60 scoops. So rather than look at, look at what we're seeing in terms of the despair and the suffering, like you said, and, and do things like just sort of harden our hearts and say, well, yeah, let's throw them into forced treatment. We need to have some real compassion. Okay? Compassion means meeting people where they're at. It means listening to their story. And that's not what, what I hear coming from many politicians or, or these op-ed writers. If you want to hear more about Ben Perrin's personal journey, the evolution of his perspective, you can search our podcast or our YouTube archives back on June 13th of 2022 uh, professor got personal and he talked to us about his change of tune that's real talk on june 13th 2022 uh, ben perrin is the author of the best seller shortlisted for a number of literary awards overdose heartbreak and hope in canada's opioid crisis he's stephen harper's former justice and public safety advisor and a professor at ubc's peter allard school of law Thanks for your time and your perspective. We always appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Let us know what you think about what you're hearing here. Let us know if you agree or disagree. If this is personal for you, if you would trust us with telling your story, you can email us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. If you'd prefer to remain anonymous, that's perfectly fine as well. These conversations are presented by Real Talk sponsors like California Closets. They want to remind you that while everybody knows California Closets for their custom closets, their storage solutions for the entire home, they are doing garages like nobody else. So if you've seen the ads, if you've seen the evidence, maybe in a friend of yours house of how California Closets custom design can completely transform a living space, just imagine what they could do 
in your garage with storage cabinets and all sorts of solutions like workbenches customized to the type of work that you're going to be doing. The garage is the workhorse of the home, so why not make it work a little harder for you? Custom designed garage cabinetry, drawers, shelves, specialty wall storage racks create a purposeful room for efficiently storing garden and snow tools, sports equipment, keepsakes, even holiday decor. You can request a free consultation today by visiting californiaclosets.ca. Our friends at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food want to let you know that for the entire month of May, our Doggy Moggy Chicken Veggie Raw Dog Food Blend is on sale for just 99 bucks for a 40-pound box. That's 16 bucks off. The blend uses entire chickens, whole chickens sourced from Alberta farmers and human-grade facilities. That's right. You're feeding your dog the best in the West. And when they say the whole chicken, they mean everything. The organs included. That's what sets Grand Dog's raw food apart from the rest. Their blends use as many organs as possible, providing your dog with the most nutrition available from fresh food sources. When you check them out online at granddog.ca under the shop now link, you'll also find Adored Beast apothecary items, the latest supplement line that's added to their shop. This is an exciting new addition to their store that allows them to offer quality supplements, not just for dogs, but cats as well. You can shop today at granddog.ca to have these supplements, this food delivered right to your door in Edmonton, Calgary, or Central Alberta. And the promo code REALTALK knocks 10% off your first time order. Hey, putting out a call to those of you that are looking to make an impact in the world around you. Do you have dreams to build the next innovative product or maybe solve a world problem? Maybe you want to lead change or grow community or transform business? Then Nate's J.R. Shaw School of Business is your answer. As one of Canada's leading polytechnic business educators, they can help you harness your inner talent, build your skills, feed your curiosity. Your future will be brighter because of their immersive style of learning and deep relationships with the industry. Graduate with the in-demand skills that future employers are looking for. There's a ton of options there for you. You can get down to business today with Nate's J.R. Shaw School of Business at nate.ca slash business. Hey, we want to congratulate our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy for officially getting that endorsement from APEGA. Yeah, that's right. The Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta. That means that Kubi is now a licensed engineering company. Well, what does this mean for you? It means that they're one of the only solar installers in the country permitted to perform engineering. So their team of professional electrical and structural engineers are going to make sure that all their projects are completed to the absolute highest standard. It means your transition to renewable energy will be easy and stress-free. Oh, and by the way, Kubi Renewable Energy is hiring. If you're an apprentice or a journey person and you're looking to join the movement toward sustainable green energy in Canada, if you like to work at a place where, Johnny, they keep the pace fast and the beer cold. That's right. They've just opened their <laughs> new like headquarters. Here. Just like Real Talk. <laughs> you can check them out online at kubienergy.ca. 
And before we get to Rachel Gilmore, our friends at Friesen Brothers want to let you know that they've got a one-day-only sale that's coming up on May 18th. The chicken and ribs sizzling sale only in Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan and Stony Plain. A one-day sale on chicken and ribs. Perfect for the May long weekend. You can find out more uh, starting today at Friesen.com slash BBQ season. It is BBQ season. Also, the garden centers are now open. You know, more than half the plants they sell there are actually grown right here in Alberta, so they're perfectly suited for Alberta weather. Even the potting soil is made right here in Alberta. You can find more online at Friesen.com. Check out that new vegan Berta pizza, too. Oh, dude. Beyond Meat Pepperoni, which we both... Thank you to their their head of what is it? Their head of it's uh, their head of produce that yeah, dropped it off. Came by, he was great. Gave us a couple of those, and uh, they were delicious. Yeah, this is yeah the Big Berta vegan pepperoni yeah. pizza. So the Big Berta, like probably the one of the most popular fresh made pizzas they have, and yeah. now they've made it plant based, which is great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, never frozen. That's the beauty of those pizzas. Amazing. And is it an insult to the plant based movement for me to say that it? tasted and felt in my mouth like meat no i think that's the point right that's what everybody wants to know is like is this going to taste like a knockoff or is it going to taste like the real thing yeah and Uh, and it tastes like the real thing yeah and i always say this i'm a realist like we're not trying to like we know some people are always going to eat meat but you know it's it's out there now that you should eat a little less every now and then right you should probably shouldn't eat it for every meal so why not throw in one of these every now and then right there you go nice just like it you're just trying to get free pepperoni pizza i want a few more i see right right through your plan (laughs) our next guest is easily one of the most prominent and talented you, you might say next gen journalists in canada what i mean by that is she has been reporting using digital assets and multimedia social media platforms to tell important stories across the country a large part of her career has had a lot to do with covering issues involving the far right and extremism in canada and abroad and that has meant that she has endured and faced more abuse than probably almost any other journalist in the country rachel gilmore joins us in just a second but first here's a recent post from her tiktok to give you a sense of what she's all about oh i got laid off from my job It happened two weeks after I won a major award alongside my friends Saba and Erica for fighting for the freedom of press at great personal risk to myself. I've basically been getting death threats for being a journalist for about a year now. Those threats were exacerbated by the fact that I cover the far right and they don't love that. In fact, they don't love that so much that when I posted an email so future employers could find me and offer me jobs, they started sending the death threats there. Without a newsroom to protect me, I'm having to deal with these all on my own. People also started using my email to post fake escort ads, sign me up for multiple dating sites, at least one of them caught on, and use my info to sign me up for OnlyFans. But even though I know these people want to shut me up, it's not going to work. I'm going to keep sharing my work here and on all my social media channels. I'm so excited for whatever comes next. I wasn't the only one who got laid off. Some amazing, talented colleagues were also caught up. If you're smart, you'd hire all of them. Rachel Gilmore making her Real Talk debut this morning. It's so good to see your face and welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I know that this, I described it off the top of the episode, is a race to the bottom. It's a distinction that nobody wants to have, but I think arguably, at least from what I've seen, you put up with more bullshit than any other journalist in Canada. Is that fair to say? Maybe. I don't know if I want to award myself that uh, honor, 
I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, it's definitely been really crazy. Um, it's been a lot. So you're probably not far off. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So you were laid off. Hey, I owe you an apology, by the way. I tweeted earlier this morning that you were fired by Global News. You were not fired. <laughs> you were laid off. But what made it particularly interesting, uh, number one, you were one of their rising stars. The work you were doing was gleaning a ton of attention. But you had also just recently won, like two weeks before, a national journalism award. How are you wrapping your mind around what happened now that I guess maybe the dust has settled a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it sucks. I think anyone in our industry knows how much the threat of being laid off is always kind of in the back of your mind. It's looming there, um, but you kind of push it out of your head. So I definitely wasn't expecting any layoffs um, and was really shocked. And honestly, I mean, I, I did kind of think I was a little bit insulated because of the award I had won and because I was, you know, break in a fair bit of news for us but uh i guess it just goes to show that uh no one's really safe from the ravages of our industry these days yeah no kidding uh want to mention that the award that you won you won it alongside a good friend of this show erica Ifill, uh who's just like an incredible human i don't know if i've met anybody with more energy when she talks than erica Ifill and saba Idazaz as well it was it was kind of like a group recognition essentially for the work that you've been doing i haven't had a chance to speak with you since you won that award uh it was an acknowledgement the, the award itself that the three of you had endured hardships related to the profession that most people couldn't relate to what did that mean to you I think it was really profound, honestly, and it, I couldn't have shared it with better people. Saba and Erica have become such good friends and they are so badass. Um, I'm, I feel really lucky to know them. Um, but yeah, it just, I think that one of the things that you find when you speak out about this stuff is that people get tired of it. Mm. And, you know, part of addressing this is continuing to making it continuing to make it people's problem um because a lot of people i think get the initial shock of it and then move on um but it's still happening and we still are getting those threats like to this day we're still getting them um and i think that getting that award especially after things had kind of started to die down in terms of the public support um, it really meant a lot to see that there's still people that care, that there's people that um, respect what we're doing. And also, frankly, as journalists, we're not really encouraged to speak out or speak about ourselves. Um, and it feels a bit unnatural <laughs> to kind of be the story. Um, so getting that recognition definitely felt validating that we were doing something important. So, yeah, yeah, it was the uh, the, the Tara Singh Hayer Award, I should say, that, that was uh, presented at the Canadian Journalists for Free Expression Gala. Uh, now that you're, and, and <laughs> this is a tough, let, let's just say it, because people are going to be going, why isn't he asking her about what she's doing now? Why isn't he asking her about what her project is? There, there are some limitations, and we won't get into it to, to make it uncomfortable and, and, and get you into hot water or whatever have you. We don't want to compromise your legal position. You can't really talk about what you're doing right now. But you're not as far as I can tell, supported by, or let me even say protected by, though we may take issue with that. I don't know that you were ever adequately protected. And I say this as a former colleague under that multi-billion dollar empire, but you don't have that horsepower uh, behind you at this point anyway. Has that influenced or impacted how you've felt or how you've responded to the online troll activity that's aimed at you? Because I see that they've not laid up one bit. No, they definitely haven't. Um, I think it's kind of a, a 
there's two sides to it, right? Um, on the one hand, when you're working for kind of like the mainstream or corporate, the, the big money media, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have the legal firepower behind them. They have, um, the, it's it's a whole institution that you have protecting you. And um, well, to the extent that it, it does. <laughs> um, so, you know, there were some efforts that they made that I really appreciated. Like they had um, done security scans of my social media to make sure that I couldn't, uh, they couldn't figure out my address and things like that. So that was really um, reassuring. But, you know, there's also, I think that in many ways, newsrooms are grappling with the same thing that we're all grappling with, which is that no one really knows what to do about this. I mean, trolls have always existed, but they're so emboldened and empowered these days. And um, so I think that in some ways, it's difficult for newsrooms to have someone like me who's not shutting up about the problems, um, because it continually forces them to kind of reckon with it. Um, and, you know, now that I am not working uh with corporate media mm. um i i definitely don't have those legal protections which is really unnerving um and you know it's scary knowing that i'm i'm going it alone i don't really have anyone i can call institutionally the police have been absolutely horrible <laughs> like they really haven't done anything can you tell um, us about that rachel yeah yeah so they they basically I would get these threats and I would report them to the police, which took forever. Um, and some of the times the people taking the calls would make it so obvious that they just didn't care. Um, they were annoyed by the call. I recorded one of them and posted it. So if you don't believe me, you can go check it out. It's like they just I felt like I could hear them rolling their eyes through the phone, you know, um, and every single time you get a new threat, you have to go through that reporting process again. It takes hours and then inevitably almost every time the police would come back and say hey um this doesn't meet the definition of a threat under the criminal code because it doesn't really provide for mafia language according to the police's interpretation so if someone tells you oh it would be a shame if someone killed you um that's not a death threat according to the police because they're not saying i am going to kill you they're saying oh, it would be too bad if that happens to you or someone really should but they're not outright saying that they're going to do it. So that was what I kept coming up against. And I even had like really prominent Canadian journalists message me sometimes when I would post threats and they'd be like, that one's really scary. You need to make sure you're reporting that to the police. And I can think of a specific example where someone made a video where they pulled out a knife and, you know, they talked about animals getting whipped and compared me to those animals. And um, I remember I reported that to the police at the behest of a really prominent Canadian journalist who told me that was scary and the police got back to me and told me it wasn't a threat and that they wouldn't be pursuing it. So it, it just kind of felt like it, I, I was wasting my time eventually. Um, and you get really exhausted and burnt out and you're just constantly feeling like you're a nuisance. Um, yeah. So you just really don't have any, any support in that respect. And it makes it scary mm. <laughs> because like, you know, I had some guys, uh, a guy who clearly owned a bunch of guns suggest that he was going to show up at one of my boyfriend's concerts. I called the police. I told them and they said, well, call us if he shows up. <laughs> like, what do you, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, so, okay. Scary. Let me, let me say, so we, we call the show real talk because sometimes you got to just ask a question, but I recognize that the question could be for some people that may not recognize that you and I have corresponded for a long time. They may say, well, this is a question that would be along the lines of victim blaming. I don't mean that, but I want to ask you why you think 
that you have been such a lightning rod uh, for, for this type of thing uh, over and above other women in journalism over and above other young journalists. Do you think, I mean, is it, is it, is it because you've been somewhat defiant in the face of the abuse and harassment? Is it because you've uncovered so much in your reporting on the far right on extremism? Do you think it's another factor? Like what insight do you have into why you have been such a, a, a perennial or a perpetual target of these people, including facing literal death threats. Why do you think it is? I think it's there's a multitude of factors. Um, and I, I think that, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a young woman covering a space that is mostly covered by like old white dudes. And so I think that for some of the like incel guys that I'm covering, it's just very exciting to have a woman, you know, interacting or saying their names whatsoever. Um, and some of these guys started using my TikTok footage as almost clickbait in their own kind of weird podcast live stream things. Um, so I think that having like a young woman that they could use in that way was beneficial to them as clickbait. Um, and also the fact that I was making these short form videos, I think that a lot of these people don't actually read the articles that are written about them. But when you're doing it in a 45 or 60 second video, they do watch that. So I think that that put me on some of these, especially far right extremist group right. Um, radars. Um, and then, you know, I do hit back and um it's just who I am. I have not really been someone who is able to take it quietly when I see something really unjust happening. And this isn't just about me. That's what I'm always thinking when people are piling on. Um, there's a real concerted effort that we're seeing from a lot of figures, not just small trolls, but huge names to discredit and attack institutions that preserve our democracy and silence the voices of women and people of color who report in those spaces and bring a new lens to journalism that it's so important and that's very threatening to some of the worst people in the world. And I think that, you know, we have done the um, buttoned up professional, you know, we'll just keep doing our work and let it speak for itself approach. And it's not working. Like, we, it's not working. Things are trust is continually eroding. Um, people are continually blaming journalists and we're not engaging with that. And so I, I just decided to try a different approach because I found that in speaking out, while it could sometimes drive more people to harass me and it put my name in the spotlight in a way that led to more of that, I'm sure, um, it didn't stop when I shut up, first of all, because mm. sometimes my newsroom would ask me, hey, you know, let's yeah. play, let's rein it in a little. You're being a little bit too much of an advocate here. Um, and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm just advocating to not be murdered, but fair enough. <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean, I'm I not laughing because it it's funny, by the way. I know, I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I would rein it in and then uh, I would still be getting death threats. So I'm like, okay. Now it's just not anyone else's problem. I'm just suffering in silence effectively. I'm still dealing with the same thing. It's just maybe not the same, the same numbers, but it's still happening on a near daily basis. So it's just not your problem anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely decided in those moments, like, okay, well, shutting up doesn't work. So I'm just going to keep calling it out so that all the other people going through this see that we're not just taking it, we're standing up against it. And we're not going to accept the erosion of trust in media, we're going to call out people who are lying about us, 
and saying, you know, BS. I don't know if I can swear on here, but <laughs> you can say bullshit all you want. Yeah. Okay. Like people are just saying bullshit about journalists. And at some point I feel like we should push back and maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe in 25 years, we'll be like, Oh, Rachel really contributed to erosion of trust or things like that. But I just know that the status quo isn't working. And I, I really am not, I'm scared for the future of journalism and for the future of our democracy, frankly, and not to yeah. be too lofty about it, but it is fundamentally what's happening. So. Yeah, no, I, I share your concern. Um, I, I've, I've kind of debated and, and you're not the only guest, but you're certainly one of the guests at the top of the list where, where to establish context, we want to give the audience an idea of, of, of some of the stuff you face, but we also don't want to amplify it, you know? And, and, and so I picked <laughs> some stuff that, that you've put out just in the last week to give people an idea. I want to be clear. This is not the worst. I mean, people are talking about, murdering you uh and, and i don't say that in glib fashion so so this is stuff that's that's like a little dialed back from there but still horrific it's brutal i mean you you tweet uh you know over the weekend a tribute to your mom it's mother's day for pete's sake you know you, you share some wonderful photos of the two of you you say i have the best mama i'm so lucky you know my mom's insanely smart driven brave and funny she also does the work of two parents and makes it look easy Somebody quote tweets it and says, single teenage mother makes a lot of sense that Rachel is the product of this. Or what about the red car incident? So you're looking out for other women in the, in the capital region, the Ottawa region. You say, hey, if you're downtown, heads up. You were just followed. You tweeted this uh, just on Saturday. You were followed by a man in a red car. You say he'd slowly drive alongside me, pull over every time he got ahead of me. He was staring at me. Well, what responses are you getting? Someone says red car guy for the win. Someone else says a fake damsel in distress alert. Somebody else says file this under the never happened column. Somebody else says she was confused for being a street walker. This is stuff that you face almost every day. I see it all the time. I mean, how do you manage it? And do you worry that other young women or girls that would envision or dream of a career in journalism would say no way in hell I'm going to subject myself to that. That's my biggest fear, honestly. Like I, and I think about that constantly and I think it's part of what drives me to push back so much um, because I want to show them that it's not wearing me down and mm. that, you know, there will be people who will have their back too if they, um, find themselves in a similar situation because I do, I have noticed, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, older or uh, established journalists, some of them disagree with my approach and that's totally their right. Um, but I worry about people seeing what's happening to me um, and then seeing, you know, some established journalists kind of make passive aggressive remarks about like whining to Twitter and stuff and worry that they won't have support networks. And so I, I hope that in pushing back on it and kind of poking fun at it too, and keeping it like, sometimes I get serious, but I also try to keep it light sometimes. And I think that that hopefully shows them that like, there are people who are pushing back on this and who will have your back if you come into this business and choose to push back as well, because it is a reality. And I don't want to sugarcoat that, that a lot of people hate journalists and they really hate female journalists and they especially hate women of color journalists. Mm. Um, but you will have like a sisterhood that'll have your back if they come after you. Um, so I hope that that kind of helps to assuage some of the, the fears. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it has been really scary. Um, you know, I haven't talked about this a lot um, publicly, but it, it did kind of like ruin my life for probably eight months, I would say, until I um, just kind of said, fuck it. Mm -hmm. um, I... I was terrified to leave my house. I, I'm really extroverted. I talk a lot. I like to go out dancing with friends and stuff. And I stopped all of that because I was really afraid. Like I was looking over my shoulder, even when I was just going to the grocery store, um, when people would come up behind me or talk to me, I would find myself being really jumpy. And I tried going out for drinks with friends once in the thick of all of this. And I, um, could just feel that I was really stressed and all of a sudden you know and I had only had a drink and a half so I was not you know in my cups being all emotional but I just found that the stress got so bad that I just was crying and I didn't know why and I it just ruined that evening for me effectively and I you know so I I just kind of stopped leaving the house for a while and that was really hard and it was really scary. And I was scared something bad was going to happen to my family and it would be my fault. And I was thinking, you know, should I, is it my fault for choosing this career that, you know, what if someone goes after my siblings? I saw them posting on a far right extremist messaging board that, you know, they were talking about where my sister goes to school. They um, infiltrated my older sister's fiance's like Twitch stream to talk about me and things like that. So it's just, it's been um, really, really tough. And, um, you know, the, the red car thing being followed on the street, um, by a man in a car to the point that other women pulled over and checked on me. Um, and I was worried I was being crazy. So when they pulled over and were like, Hey, that guy's following you. Are you okay? I was like, Oh man, that, okay. I was right to be scared. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's just because it's a creepy dude or if it's because I know that I am targeted by certain people. And that is really hard. It's like my life is forever kind of marked by that. I have to think about that. Even on this um, podcast, you know, I know that there's probably some people that will take the images and videos of the things that I say here and Photoshop them and clip them and present them disingenuously. And it's not even just the trolls and the far right people. There's certain like news organizations, or at least they call themselves news organizations that do that. They did that with, um, you know, True North's coverage of the panel that I was on where I spoke about harassment. Um, there was some narratives that emerged from that, that I continue to be harassed about from, you know, to this day. Um, so there is a really complicated ecosystem of people contributing to this problem. And I, I don't know, I hope we can find a solution. But um, in the meantime, it's just going to take a lot of people pushing back because not doing anything and just, you know, letting our work speak for itself and continuing to be buttoned up isn't going to help the people who are most impacted by this. That's well said. I mean, it takes an incredible amount of courage. And, and I, I don't mean this, this sort of sounds like a almost like a condescending tone to say like you've put on such a brave face but but like I, I would say that I've probably faced like five percent of what you have or less and even that has been brutal on on like live text lines on terrestrial radio horrific things and, and I'm not comparing our situations but but threats people mentioning my children by name one person mentioning the school that my son goes to that kind of thing and it is unnerving no matter how brave a face you put on you still think about it at night and in real life you're being followed by a vehicle after people have threatened your life after people have noted that they know where you are the circles you run in I mean I just can't imagine 
Um, I noted in introducing you that a, a big part of your career has been covering uh, far-right extremism, conspiracy theories, uh, and misinformation, uh, both in Canada and internationally. I would imagine that the knowledge or the awareness that you glean from doing that research and telling those stories obviously impacts your perspective, uh, maybe in a sense that, that more, way more than what the average Canadian would, would think with, with regards to how serious this could be or the magnitude of what some of these threats could imply. Yeah, I think um, one thing that really struck me when I started digging into reporting in these spaces was you don't realize how much of an echo chamber you live in, mm. um, even when you think you're exposing yourself to diverse perspectives, because there are people with views and opinions that like, I didn't think there were any safe spaces to share those kinds of views. And I found whole communities with thousands of people who are Canadians. You know, a lot of people like to think, oh, you know, Canadians are so nice, but there are some really horrifying, like outright racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, um, and, you know, people who believe stuff that's just so, they live in a different plane of existence. Like their facts are completely different than the facts that you and I kind of work off of as the basic premise of everything we talk about, you know? And that to me is so scary because not only are these people really angry and hateful, but they're also really hard to convince of, um, you know, what is real. And it's hard to kind of do the work of showing them where they are misled mm. um, when even the basis that they're operating off of is so fundamentally different. It's like if if these guys said that the sky is green, all of their followers would believe them and start fighting with you for saying it's blue. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, it's really surreal. And it also um, definitely kind of discourages me sometimes because I realize how big of a problem this is. And I'm scared that someone's going to end up getting killed, especially in the in the trans movement, like the the hatred that we're seeing that's now bursting out very clearly in some really big spaces from some people with millions and millions of followers on social media. I'm really scared about what all of this is going to lead to. And I think that a lot of people who even might think that they expose themselves to diverse perspectives don't realize how prominent some of these views are in certain circles. And we need to think about how we're going to sort of de-radicalize people and bring them back from these echo chambers that they're in because they found community during the pandemic, especially when they felt isolated from family and friends, especially yeah. if they chose not to be vaccinated. Um, they found these online communities and they've become radicalized. And we need to be paying attention to that because it's going to, you know, people have actually already been killed by this, as we've seen in certain manifestos that have been published in the States. Yeah. And Canada exports a lot of that. A lot of the big far right guys in Canada or sorry, in the United States are Canadians. So we really need to reckon with the reality of the threat that's going on here and think about how we're going to, you know, face that full on. I mean, I, I think of like a coal polytechnique and then the, the, the dozens of, of tragic examples around the world and, and including in Canada and the United States of 
of people targeted in, in some circumstances for, for, for their gender, for their sexual uh, identity, for, for what have you. Um, I want to I always like, try to loop in our, our live tuning audience as much as I can. Uh, these are people that are watching live and uh, a lot of them. Uh, this is really resonating with them. Rachel, what you're bringing to the table. Tracy says it's not just female journalists online that get this stuff or in real life. It happens to average women online and in real life everywhere every day. Uh, Sharon says they're everywhere. They get in your face. They try to intimidate you. MS 2020 says this has happened to me at work. Some men are threatened by a well-spoken, educated woman. Dennis says people need to take this more seriously. He says the the stalking laws are a joke in Canada. Scott says Rachel represents what journalism ought to be, what it ought to be about. If we have any interest at all in protecting democracy, and it also calls for an increased scrutiny, Scott continues, into what we call free speech that's now equated with anyone can say anything, ignoring completely that there's a responsibility that comes with that freedom. Tracy also says this type of behavior, even the trolls in the comments become emboldened as they see others do it. It becomes their sick norm. They don't even understand anymore that it's off behavior, that it's not normal behavior. That from Tracy. Uh, Rachel, you obviously have significant followings, uh, not just on Twitter, but on Instagram, on TikTok. Uh, Every platform has its own vibe. Uh, I know you're not immune from trolls and haters on on the platforms, but have you noticed a a difference in Twitter since Elon Musk bought the platform? For people on the podcast, you just rolled your eyes right into the back of your head. How has Twitter changed in your estimation? It is horrible like it is so much worse um they're you know like i mean first and foremost as someone who often covers far-right extremism misinformation things like that i will come across a lot of accounts that are spreading lies and are you know there's literal neo-nazi accounts that um are self-identify as neo-nazis on twitter um that took weeks and weeks and weeks to be taken down. It's just, it's crazy. There's almost no uh, enforcement. And when there is, it takes so long that these accounts grow and get a huge reach. There's former organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville that were literally the reason that Twitter invented verification because they accidentally, they had to change their whole um, verification process because they accidentally verified a guy who organized that event. Mm -hmm. And um, he's back on Twitter now after being banned and he has a blue check because he pays for it. (laughs) And it's just like, it's really horrible what's being sort of encouraged and pushed and that the algorithm rewards as well. And on top of that, because a majority of the people, at least that I've encountered, that pay for the blue check mark, and I'm not saying it's everyone, there's, you know, some people just want an edit feature. So I'm not trying to paint everyone with one brush, but there are a lot of people who are very um, conspiratorially minded, who operate in that different plane of, um, you know, reality that we discussed earlier. Um, And they're a large contingent of the people paying for that blue check, which means that they are prioritizing the replies and a lot of for lack of a better word, sane people are buried at the bottom. So what you see and what's pushed out to you is this really um, aggressive, like the worst kinds of people you encounter on Twitter are now rewarded by the algorithm. And on top of that, Elon Musk is being one of those worst people. I mean, he just today compared um, George Soros to... um, Oh my God, I'm forgetting, I think Magneto, whose entire driving thing is that he's like a Holocaust survivor and he's a, you know, he's a bad guy, but it's like, like Magneto is a bad guy, (laughs) but like, it's just, 
there's a lot of really thinly veiled stuff and it's almost like the veil is just getting set on fire and they're like, here we are, we've got these views and uh, you're going to have to deal with it. Um, And we shouldn't let that be normalized because that's going to hurt people. Yeah, I 100% agree. I feel like Elon's treating Twitter like he paid 44,000 for it, not 44 billion. Like I just, I, I, I can't wrap my mind around how, you know, one of the richest people on planet earth um, and in some context, I know this is going to piss people off, maybe even you, but in some contexts, a genius uh, can be so obtuse with how he's running this platform and driving it into the ground. I just, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I mean, it's like he got the money together to, to pay $44 billion for something and then doused it in kerosene and lit it on fire. It's crazy. It's like... I don't know if he was seriously starved of like attention or just like really needs or craves a lot of validation, but it's almost like he paid 44 billion to get attention and, you know, have loyal fans, which is really sad. Um, But, you know, it's, (laughs) I I kind of feel like um, these, (sighs) I lost my train of thought there, but yeah, it's just, he, (laughs) It's really, really ridiculous, and it would be more ridiculous if it wasn't so dangerous. And it's scary, the stuff that he is feeling comfortable saying, and I I don't know what his goal is here. Um, I think he's realizing that he is fully just lighting money on fire, which is why he brought in you know a new CEO who has a background in advertising to try and bring those advertisers back, despite the fact that like Tucker Carlson had no advertisers because of the stuff he said on his show, and now he's bringing his show to Twitter. So I'm not sure that that angle's really working, but yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think that Elon Musk um, is showing as much of the genius as uh, he initially was branded as having. But, you know, one thing I'll quickly say on that is I did some reporting actually about um, multi-level marketing and like pyramid schemes a while ago. And one thing that really struck me is it doesn't matter how smart you are. Um, if people catch you in the right moment, when you have the right vulnerabilities, um, anyone could join an MLM or a pyramid scheme. Um, and I think it's kind of the same with misinformation and with these kind of communities that end up radicalizing you. You can be really smart. And, you know, if people catch you in the right moments or with the right needs or motivations, like what I see time and time again, and this is why I actually have a lot of empathy for the people involved in these like groups, um, you know, not necessarily the leaders, but absolutely many of the followers is that there are people who are, are vulnerable and are missing something in their lives. And, you know, many of them have depression or really needed community and were extremely isolated and people prey on that and then fill you up with their values and you can be really smart but still have those needs and still be vulnerable Mm. and you know what's to say that elon musk doesn't have some of those needs himself and that's not to say that not to absolve him of literally anything that he's doing here but um you know smart people are vulnerable to this so don't think that you're immune and don't think your friends are immune like Mm. keep an eye on each other 100 percent the audience is checking me on this, by the way. We shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Glenna says, Glenna says, is it genius or madness? 
Justin says Musk is a genius at taking someone else's idea, getting credit for it. MS, yeah, MS so says he's smart. I don't know if he's a genius. Anyway, we don't have to split hairs on that. I, I think you and I, our perspective aligns on what's happening with that social media platform, and we share that concern. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. You've known that for a long time. I'm excited when you can speak more publicly about what you're doing right now or what you're doing next, and we'll look forward to welcoming you back uh, to the show. And uh, something tells me that if by chance... Uh, some of our podcast listeners or YouTube viewers didn't know of you before. I hope to see a flood of new followers that are supportive of what you're doing on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We've been hanging out with Rachel Gilmore. Thanks for doing this interview. I know it's not an easy thing to talk about, to get personal, to give us insights into how some of this stuff lands with you. And I'm really proud of you for doing it. I'm grateful for it as well. Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you for having me. This was really fun. <laughs> you got it. That's Rachel Gilmore uh, in one of her first interviews, if not the first uh, since being let go by Global News. Laid off, not fired. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a, that's an important thing to discern. Uh, and, uh, of course, you can learn more about what Rachel's doing by checking out the show notes on our podcast. Great interview. Or on YouTube. Yeah. It's pretty impressive, hey? I always get so mad when people talk about, you know, the, the children of single parents as if, you know, oh, their fuck. lives are just fucked. And you always have these, like, conservative... Right-wing people tweeting out, well, the data shows if you don't have a mom and dad, your life's going to be screwed. When I look at real life, I see exactly the opposite. Like, just off the top of my head, like athletes, politicians, celebrities, like Michael Phelps, Jon Stewart, Stephen Colbert, Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama was the child of a single parent, became mm -hmm. a prominent lawyer, president of the United States. So whenever I see this data or people pushing that narrative, like if you, if you don't have a mom and dad, mm. you're less intelligent. You're not going to be a whole person. You're not going to have a good life. I just, I roll my eyes. And maybe that's because I'm a child of a single parent too, but it's just, it's ridiculous to me. And to put that out on Mother's Day, to, to rub mean, it in some someone. Some people have no shame, man. It's ridiculous. I appreciate you saying that. A shout out to all the single parents out there who are doing heavy lifting. Uh, nobody knows how tough it is but you because you probably don't sit and complain about it you don't look for the accolades you just show up every single day for your kids and for your job and for everything else that's pulling at your time and energy and we salute you yeah our live studio audience feels the same and no surprise a shout out to all the single moms and dads today that conversation was presented by our friends at Apex Automation. They're hiring right now. You can check out apexautomation.ca if you're an electrical engineer, an instrumentation engineer, a computer science engineer, a process engineer, a mechanical engineer. Johnny, you get the idea. They're hiring a whole bunch of people, electricians, instrument technicians. Their goal is to have a well-rounded team that can deliver turnkey projects for their clients. They know that not one person, no matter how talented they are, can do it all on their own. It takes a team. And that's why Apex Automation has been putting its people ahead of profits for 10 years now. One of Canada's fastest growing firms. They also give back to the communities where they live and work. We see it firsthand. They're an important sponsor at our Real Talk Golf Classic, and we're proud to partner with Apex Automation. You can learn more about open positions right now if you're looking to take your career to the next level at apexautomation.ca. You know who also might be looking at hiring this summer? It's the team at Eden Landscaping. Why? Because there's a big demand for their services as they bring outdoor 
Spaces to Life. Mike and his team, this is a family-owned business. They've been doing this for 20 years. Custom landscape builds, and they've got the -the on-the-ground experience to ensure that everything, no matter what your vision, is executed with precise attention to detail. That means edible garden boxes. What a trend there. Hey, excavation. Sometimes it's a small job that needs to be done. Sometimes it's a big one. Leveling ground, removing existing greenery. They do it all, starting with the proper foundation. Hardscapes and stonework and custom retaining walls. It's all part of what landscapeedmonton.ca shows off. That's Eden Landscaping. The water features and outdoor kitchens, too, deserve a shout-out. Mike and his team would love to hear from you today. The first consultation, of course, is completely free. Again, landscapeedmonton.ca. Man, it's a beautiful day outside right now. I know there's smoke everywhere. And again, a shout out to all of those displaced by evacuation orders and all those firefighters. If you need to quench that, if you need to address that heat right now, why not check out the May Blizzard Treat of the Month at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Oh, the thermometer shows it's blizzard season and right now the caramel fudge cheesecake blizzard treat is getting a lot of attention no wonder because it blends indulgence with innovation to create a true cheesecake experience we're talking salted caramel truffles cheesecake pieces and caramel topping blended with dairy queen's world famous vanilla soft serve Please all of your sweet summertime cravings at the same time at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Our friends at Complete Care Restoration want to remind you that if indeed you do have to deal with that nightmare of fire damage, or maybe it's a spring storm that creates a basement flood or another mess you've got to clean up, mold removal, asbestos removal, they do it all. And if you're in Alberta, Chances are your insurance policy lets you choose who does the work. If you do have to deal with a problem like this, don't put it in the wrong hands. Get in touch with the trusted team at Complete Care Restoration online, completecarerestoration.ca or 780-454-0776. And we're just a few days away from the next edition of Trash Talk, presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. You can find them online at localenvironmental.ca. If you're a decision maker in Alberta or Saskatchewan, that could be for a small business. It could be for a huge business like the Northwest Refinery. It could be a shopping mall or it could be a community. Maybe you're a town administrator. Local Environmental Services handles front load bins, roll off bins, recycling, water hauling, landfill services, vacuum trucks, fence rentals, porta potties, you name it. You can check out their services today at localenvironmental.ca. We want to thank everybody that takes the time to share their thoughts with us on the content that you're consuming here on the show, the stories that you're learning more about. You can leave a comment on our YouTube episodes. Of course, you can always rate and review our podcast. Man, do we ever appreciate that. And you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up on tomorrow's show, energy media publisher Markham Hislop says he's got his Pulitzer Prize winning story. It's a look at Alberta's energy regulator. Plus, Guy Fel 
Palacella from Life on the Streets to harm reduction expert. He'll tell us his personal story in our third interview of three on the opioid crisis. Political roundtables coming up on Thursday and Friday. We've got you covered ahead of May 29th. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.